Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. My name is Brett Ricely, and I'm the Associate Pastor of Discipleship. Uh, for those of you tuning online, again, welcome. And if you're in the overflow room, again, glad you're here. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be turning into it here in just a moment. Over the last few weeks, uh, we are in week three of five in our sermon series called Family on Mission. And the goal is to try to help us as a church understand everyone's role in the communal life of the body, uh, what it means to be a family on mission, whether that means you've got kids, whether it means you've got grandkids, maybe that means you're single, maybe that means you're an empty nester. But because we are a communal faith, it's appropriate for all of us to understand how God's design for the family works regardless of your place in the family. And so uh, the last two weeks we've looked at the right design. What is God's design for the family? We've seen that. We've talked about that. That's where we have gotten these ping pong balls on the stage. If you're just joining us for the first time today or online, you might be going, what's with all the ping pong balls? Go back and watch the first sermon. You'll see the whole illustration. But the, the point was this. Parents, you have 54,000 hours of influence in the life of your kid from zero to 18. That pales in comparison to schools who have, what was it? 12,000. 6,000, I think it was, 6,000 hours of influence for the schools in your life, in the kids, your kids' life. But then it comes all the way down to the church from 0 to 18. If you bring them to church twice a week, 18 years in a row for twice a week, the church only has 2,000 hours of influence in the life of your kids. The point of this illustration was to say, parents, realize the potential that God has given you. Don't waste it. Leverage it. And so that's what we looked at week one. Week two, then we talked about, well, if this is God's design, then what are my priorities? Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to my spouse, and faithfulness to my kids. And today, now we're going to ask the question, now that we know the design, now that we know the priorities, now what's, what's the target? What are we shooting for? What should we be aiming at? In any competition, you've got some kind of target. You've got a goal, right? If you're a sports team, your goal is to win games and ultimately win the biggest game, whatever that is. That's the goal. That's the thing you're usually shooting for. But as parents, grandparents, and spiritual parents, what is the goal? What are we shooting for? Do we even know what target should be on the wall? Maybe we've got the wrong targets altogether and we're wasting time shooting at the wrong thing when God's word says actually the target's over here. So that's the question we're going to seek to answer today. So the title of the message is The Right Targets. So if you've got your note guide, go ahead and pull that out. We're going to get into that here pretty quick. So the two primary things, and again, there's more, but the two primary targets that I believe God's Word says that we, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, or a spiritual parent, which we'll define here in a minute, the two primary targets should be cultivating faith and cultivating maturity. And we're going to unpack those two things this morning. But before we do that, would you pray with me, and then we're going to open God's Word. Father, thank you again for the moment that we have to open your Word and to do our best to bring our lives into alignment with your Scriptures. Holy Spirit, I pray in the, in the few moments that we have that, that you would take what little meager offering that I have today in this sermon, that you would multiply it to the benefit of your people, that you would speak directly to each person in terms that they can understand and in terms that they need to apply and that they would hear from you 
and obey and walk in obedience and faith and in courage. Lead us and guide us, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So throughout the message today, I'm going to use a graphic that will be on the screen here in just a second. Um, and I think it's helpful because we're going to see the various stages of spiritual reality from being spiritually dead all the way to being a spiritual parent and what that means to grow in maturity. And so we're going to see this graphic here, if you want to go ahead and put that up there now. But the very first reality, um, I must have made the slides in the wrong order, so that's my bad. Um, but we're going to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. But the first thing we want to cultivate is faith. We want to be cultivating faith. So in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Yeah, there we go. So up on the screen, you see the reality on the left of a person that is spiritually dead. Their greatest need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. How do I know this is their greatest need? And how do we know that people start off spiritually dead? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Follow along with me in your Bible or on your phone. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And catch this. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were by nature, nature, meaning the way that we were born. Paul says, before you came to Christ, you were by nature a child of wrath, spiritually dead, just like the rest of mankind. This is a universal problem of sin. So truth point number one in your note guide is this. Mankind was created in the image of God. That is true. Genesis 1, 26, 27, the whole chapter proves that. Mankind was created in the image of God, but because of sin and spiritual death, we are not automatically children of God. Raise your hand if you've heard a Christian person say to you, we're all God's children. I'm here to tell you today that from God's word, that is categorically untrue in every way. We just read about it. We are not all God's children. We are only God's children if we are redeemed and saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But we are all, all of humanity is made in the image of God, meaning we, ha we bear his image as humans. But we are not all God's children until we come to faith. So regardless of how nice it might sound, we're all God's children. Well, that sounds great. I wish it were true, but we're not. And we have to grapple with this as we understand the reality that we're all born spiritually dead, including our children, grandchildren, including me, including you. And therefore, if we're all born as children of wrath, the greatest need of our children, grandchildren, and others is faith in Jesus Christ, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, if that is true, then their greatest need should be our greatest focus. Amen? If our children, grandchildren, lost people, whoever, if they are lost, that's their greatest need. And if their greatest need is truly that, then that should be our greatest focus. Amen? That should be our greatest focus, especially in our families. So target number one on your note guide, cultivate faith. Fill in the note blank there, faith. Now, as we talk about this, it's important to understand that 
Salvation works a certain way, and we don't have any control over it. We cannot save our kids or grandkids, regardless of how religious we are, how moral we are, how good of a church attender we are, how upright in society we are, how great our family business is. None of that stuff has anything to do with our kids coming to Christ. But on the other hand, we also can't damage our kids so badly by the way that we raise them that we doom them to hell because of our bad parental or grandparenting influence. All I'm trying to say is this. You and I don't have the power to save a person, and we do not have the power to influence someone to hell. Does that make sense this morning? You and I don't have that kind of influence. We don't have that kind of power. Only the Spirit of God can save a person or not. So it's critical that we understand and have a right understanding as we talk about cultivating faith. Many people have come to me, many parents have come to me distraught, saying, how do I get my kids saved? How do I help them come to Christ? How, what do I do? They're not. I'm so worried. And I get that. It's a real weight. We all want our children, grandchildren, loved ones to be saved, of course. But we have to understand that there's God's part in salvation, there's our part, and there's their part. There's three parts in how this works. Let's unpack each, starting with God's part, the most important. Again, if you've already bought your Bibles, turn again to Ephesians, but flip over backwards one page to chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6, and then verse 11. And again, I encourage you to read all of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 today if you're interested more in all of this. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Again, Paul's writing to the believers in Ephesus about this. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved. And then jump down to verse 11. In him, meaning in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that's a lot of stuff there. But in verse 4 we see that we, as believers, were chosen before the foundation of the world. So what that means is in eternity past, God chose and predetermined and elected those whom he would save. In verse 5, note the number of times that Paul uses the word predestined. We've been predestined for what, Paul says? Predestined for adoption. All of you know how adoption works in here. Does the kid pick the parents or do the parents pick the kid? You can answer. <laughs> parents pick the kid. That is a very great illustration of how election or predestination works in terms of salvation. God, the Father chooses the children that he wants to be his children. And we don't have time today to unpack of all the ins and outs of, well, why does he do it that way? And what about those who aren't chosen? Luckily for you, Pastor Mike has preached on this topic in length in our Roman series a few months ago. So if you'd want to go back and learn about that, I would encourage you to do so. He talks extensively about predestination and election, how that works in salvation, and I would encourage you to research that and to dig into that. Or if you have questions, I'd be happy to talk more. But today the point is this. God is choosing 
He's electing, and he is predetermining some to be adopted into his family. We have to understand that as we look at our kids and our grandkids. We have to understand that while we have a part to play, the ultimate decision of how our kids come to faith is in the hands of God alone. Why does God do it this way? We don't have a lot of answers other than in verse 5, Paul says, according to the purpose of his will. In verse 11, it says, according to the counsel of his will. God did so because he wanted to, and he is good, right, just, and perfect, and he has a lot of good reasons that are not fully explained, but we can trust his character because he is perfect and holy. Now, this is sometimes hard for us to wrestle with, I know. I know many of you struggle with the reality of kids and grandkids and others who are not saved, and you struggle with this reality, and I understand. But truth point number two hopefully brings you a little bit of encouragement as well. God is sovereign over the salvation of our children. God is the only one who can regenerate a human heart and save a person through faith alone in Christ alone. But this doesn't mean then that you don't have anything to do. The all, sometimes the pendulum gets swung too far the other way and we go, well, if God's choosing and picking, I guess I'll just sit back and do nothing. Is that a good application of God's word? No. If you've read the Bible, you know that, that God has not called you to sit passively and do nothing with your Christian life. So what is our part? Let's look at the second part now. God's part is sovereign. What is your part? What is my part? Very simply this. Point your children, grandchildren, and others to Jesus. It's not very complicated. Point them to Jesus. In the context of evangelism and discipleship, God's sovereignty is never at odds with human responsibility. God's sovereignty is never at odds with our human responsibility, right? If, if, if we're just going to sit back and say, God's going to do it all, I say, I don't have anything to do, well, that directly violates the very command of King Jesus himself in the Great Commission, does it not? When King Jesus says, go in, into all the world and proclaim the gospel, or go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey me, or when Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, then it should be apparent to us that even though God is sovereign over the salvation of the lost, he has called us to participate in that sovereign reality. And we have a responsibility to obey King Jesus. And what does that look like? Again, faithfulness is the key. You don't have the power to save people, but you do have the responsibility to be faithful. So let's look now at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he is helping them understand who actually is, is really doing some of this work. And what does it look like? And in these verses, we see a beautiful combination of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, Paul says, What then is Apollos? Apollos was a leader in the church in Corinth. What is Paul? And what does he say? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Now leave that up there for a second. So Paul says, I'm a servant, Apollos is a servant, but we as servants are the means through which you came to believe in Christ as the Lord assigned. So notice the sovereignty of God. The Lord is assigning salvation to those who have come to faith, but he has used Paul and Apollos as an instrument through the gospel. Do you see that? So there's both happening at the exact same time. And then in verse 6, Paul continues on with the responsibility. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So in verse 5, we see the sovereignty of God. Verse 6 and 7, we see the human responsibility, and those things marry together in perfect harmony, even though maybe we don't understand how that all works. Our job as believers is to point our kids and grandkids to Christ, to point them to the gospel, to make sure that we are cultivating faith and spiritual truth in their lives. We're planting seeds. We're watering seeds. We're praying fervently. But then we lay our head down at night on the pillow, and we trust that the reality is that only God can give the growth. So we labor, we toil. We'll talk about that later. But we labor and toil trusting that God is in control of the outcome. God is in control of the results of salvation in those that we love. This leads us to truth point number three, though. That cultivating faith in someone else requires an intentional and faithful effort to plant and water seeds of faith. You, you have probably a million examples of what this could look like. Plant and water seeds of faith and spiritual truth in your kids. One of the best things you could do if you are a Christian trying to lead your kids and grandkids that direction is to share your testimony. How did you become a Christian? That's one of the most powerful things we could share. Here's what God has done in my life. Here's who I used to be before Christ. Here's how I met Jesus and he changed my life. And now here's who I am. My son's in the room and he's probably, he gets mentioned way too many times over the last three weeks, so I'm gonna have to owe him like $5. But over the years that we've raised him, we've tried to give him a, a bigger and bigger picture of how I came to faith, what my life was like before Christ. I did not grow up in a very good home. It was not very Christian. It was abusive. There's a lot of things that were very difficult. And in, instead of hiding that and kind of protecting that, we've pulled back the curtain as much as we can and as much as is appropriate for him so that he can understand that I am not here because I'm great and I'm special and God's, I'm the special instrument of God. I'm only here because God's allowed me to be here by his grace. And the person that I am today is only because he's changed me from the inside out. And apart from him, I would be a mess. I would be an absolute train wreck of a mess, addicted to all sorts of things, living a life of sin. There's only one way to explain how I am today the way that I am, and it's the power of God that has changed my soul, has changed my mind and my heart. And as we share more with him, then he gets to see, oh, wow, not look at my dad, he's so great. But hopefully he takes away, wow, look where my dad came from, look how he grew up without Christ. But look what Christ did. Look what Christ did in my dad. That's the application that we want to share our testimony. Amen? It's not about me. Look what Christ did in Brett, and if it wasn't for Christ, Brett wouldn't be here, and you probably wouldn't want to know Brett. It is only by the power of the gospel that we see this. And so, church, are you sharing your testimony? Are you sharing your story? Are you talking about what God is doing in your life right now? Let your kids hear and see as, as much as is appropriate how he's changing you, what you're doing to live in alignment with him. Because again, humanly speaking, there's no reason any of us should be Christians. Humanly speaking. But only by the grace of God, through the power of the gospel, have we been changed. Another way that you can plant and water seeds is a faithful commitment to a church body like this. Not only do we have influence, we have 2,000 hours, we're going to use that influence the best that we can. We want to influence your kids, we love your kids, and we're going to do that to the best of our ability. But also letting them be a part of the body, letting them see you in a small group, in a prayer meeting, singing worship, taking communion, going on mission trips, sitting under the authority of God's word, being a part of serving the community, being a part of serving other people in the church visiting others who are homebound. We want to let our kids see that our faith is not just this one and a half hours on Sunday. Amen? Oh, you guys awake? <laughs> we want our kids to see that our faith is not just contained to one hour on Sunday. Amen? Amen? I hope you actually believe that. 
Because if we don't, then our kids will say, yeah, faith equals church attendance. And if faith equals church attendance, it's no surprise they walk away when they're 19 because who wants to just go to church if that's all there really is? But there's not because Jesus Christ transforms and saves and changes and that spreads to all others around us. So plant and water seeds of faith. Be a part of a local body. Be reading and studying scriptures with them. We read Jesus Storybook Bible. We read Bibles as they get older. We've read through the Bible multiple times with my kids. They're talking about the stories, but also how they apply, how we've wrestled with those stories. We listen to gospel-based music. We listen and watch gospel-based movies. We try to fill our life with things that are all about Jesus and the truth. It's not because we're crazy. We just believe this is the only message that really matters. And I've only got one life. And I don't know how long God's going to let me live down here but I want to give every moment of every day to the best of my ability to influence my son and my daughter to know Jesus because I don't know when my time is going to come, but I want to be faithful with what I have, and I know that you do too. So leverage every day, invest every moment because you and I both know that life is short and it can be over in an instant. So let's be focused on cultivating faith in our kids, our grandkids, and others, trusting God for the results. And of course, this goes without saying, but I need to say it again, we must make sure that throughout all the process that we are praying fervently. Because again, we can't control the outcome. So we pray that God would save our, our kids, open their mind to see the truth of the gospel, that he would soften their hearts to the truth of the gospel. Some of you have older adult kids are hardened to the gospel. The Bible says that the spirit of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ. So a great prayer to pray is, Father, open their spiritual eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Pray fervently because we know that nothing of eternal significance ever happens without God acting first. And God does act. God has acted, and he will continue to act. So let's pray and bring our life in alignment with what he's doing. Are you being faithful to cultivate faith? That's your part. Cultivate faith. Cultivate it. Plant and water the seeds. So what's their part then? We've talked about God's part. We've talked about our part. Now what's their part? Those who don't know Jesus, our lost kids, grandkids, whoever, what's their part? There's a lot of answers that some people give, but the simplest reality is this. Their only next step is to respond in faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. If they're a lost person, their greatest step is to repent and to believe in Christ. It's that simple. That doesn't mean they can't come to church. It doesn't mean they can't come to your house. It doesn't mean you can't study the word with them. Do all of it. But their part if God is drawing them, is to respond in faith, respond in repentance and trust and belief in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 through 13, reminds us of this reality. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, for a lost person, their only next step, their best and only next step is repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Fall on the grace of the cross. Trust in him for salvation. That's target number one. Cultivate faith. Cultivate faith. And now, as our children, grandchildren, others, as they come to faith then, then our focus shifts to something else, which is the second target. Cultivate maturity. See, salvation is the beginning of the race, not the end. 
Salvation is the beginning of the race, not the end. In the letter to the Colossian church, Paul writes this. He says, Him we proclaim, meaning Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then Paul goes on in verse 29 and says, If I labor and I toil and I strive with all of his energy that so powerfully works in me. Wow, that's a lot of labor and a toil. For what? Paul labors and he toils for the maturity of the saints. He labors, not that you would have a great experience on Sunday and be wowed and entertained, but you would be edified. You would be encouraged. You would be challenged. You would be drawn to deeper levels of maturity in Christ. That's what Paul labors for. It's on your note guide at the bottom, but it says, it takes only a moment to, t- to make a convert, but it takes a lifetime to manufacture a saint. It only takes a moment to make a convert, but it takes a lifetime to manufacture a saint. Meaning, it's easy, salvation can happen in a moment, but sanctification, the process of maturity, takes a long time. It takes a long time. And the biblical expectation is that all believers grow up on a continual, steady basis to continue to grow. That is the biblical expectation. Maturity is defined in the Bible as growing in Christ-likeness, in holiness, in dependence upon God. And there's a profound correlation that I love in Scripture of how they describe the spiritual development process and how it correlates with even human physical development, right? We see babies are born. And when babies are born, they're infants, in, they're infants. And without care and the nurture of their mom and dad, those infants will suffer or even die. They need constant attention. They can do nothing for themselves, right? Nod your heads if you've known an infant, right? They're completely dependent upon the parents in every way. And so now we're going to return to the graphic that we've seen before, and we're going to look at the four stages of spiritual maturity as defined by God's Word. The graphic that I'm using and the graphic that's on the back are not from me. It's from an author named Jim Putnam who wrote a book called Disciple Shift. And so that's his credit. That's his graphic. But I think it's helpful. So four stages of maturity we're going to look at. Stage number one, spiritual infants. Spiritual infants. And spiritual infants need constant attention. There's a fill in the blank there for your note guide. Spiritual infants need constant attention and nurturing. Why? Well, because the primary reality for them is completely helpless and completely ignorant, right? If you've got a two-month-old baby, what can it do? It's not going to mow the yard. It's not going to call you and update it when it's coming home under the curfew, right? It's not going to go to bed when it tells you to. I mean, they can do anything. First Peter 2 says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And I also want to read for you Hebrews chapter 5. You've got your Bibles again. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And again, the expectation. Notice the expectation in this text. The expectation is growth and maturity. In Hebrews here, the author is actually rebuking the church because they aren't more mature. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For through this time, for though through this time, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk... 
is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the reality is, church, we, are, we have spiritual infants in our life, whether it's our kids or others that we know, and they need constant attention and nurturing so they would grow into faith. And if they don't, then there's this reality of being stuck. And Paul, the author is saying that if you're just living on milk, you're unskilled. You're not growing up. You're stunted in your growth. And you and I probably have seen Christians who have been Christians for a long time, yet they look stunted in their maturity. And that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. They still need milk. They're not ready to be teachers. They still need to be taught. You see this reality. So remember also, infants, just like in physical life, but also in the spiritual realities, infants are messy. Are they not? They need their diapers change all the time. They're yelling, kicking, screaming. They don't sleep. There's a lot of late nights. There's a lot of early mornings. And if left unattended, they won't survive. Spiritual discipleship of an infant is no different. A lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings, a lot of mess. But as a spiritual parent, that's our joy, to raise them to know the Lord. And so it's not a burden, but it is messy. So this leads us then to stage two. So as an infant then grows in Christ, as they're being nurtured, as they're being cared for, as they're being fed the milk of the truth of the word of God and being life of the church, then stage two is hopefully they continue to grow and they become a child. Then we have spiritual children. And the primary need for spiritual children is constant guidance. Spiritual children need constant guidance. So we kind of move on from nurturing to guidance. Now there's a little bit more coaching. There's a little bit more conversation. And the reality is for children, I have a five-year-old who I'd still consider as a child, the primary trait of most children is self-centeredness. Parents, can you relate to that? Or do you have any kids that have ever been self-centered, right? Yeah, am I the only one with a kid like that? Okay. <laughs> and we all struggle with that, right? But listen, listen to how Paul exercises his spiritual leadership and he compares it and uses the imagery of a mother and a father in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12. Listen to how Paul speaks to the children he's trying to coach. He's actually affirming them in a lot of ways. But listen, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. So just stop for a moment and notice Paul's heart for the people that were less mature than him. He wasn't arrogant, he wasn't rude, he wasn't brash, and he wasn't judgmental. He said, I, we are affectionately desirous for you. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. Uh-oh, there's that language again. He labored and he toiled for their maturity. For we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So it is work. It is work to disciple others, to help them to know the gospel. But verse 10, Paul says, You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, the believers. Now listen to this. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Notice Paul's heart again. It's like a mother. It's like a father. And he's loving and nurturing and caring for them. But he's also laboring and toiling. And he's challenging them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So the same thing, spiritual parents. 
We must challenge those who are less mature to grow up into faith, but to do that in a nurturing, loving, fatherly, motherly, compassionate way. And we read about this too. We're not going to read it, but take a look at 1 John 2 today. And notice all the times John uses the term children as he addresses the church there. And so spiritual children, they need to be taught and they need to be guided out of their self-centeredness. And the best way to do that is to provide a model and to provide guidance in a nurturing, loving, but very truthful, challenging way. And again, parents, if you've raised kids, you know this, right? You have to continually talk about it. It's not just a one conversation and they mastered it. It's daily, a daily conversation of here's how we grow into faith. And again, if you're not a parent or you're wondering again, all of what we're talking about right now is applicable to every person in the room because every single person has been commissioned by King Jesus to make disciples, amen? And if that's true, then this reality we're talking about is applicable for you, not only as a disciple, and where am I at on the spiritual maturity spectrum, but it's also applicable as a disciple maker. As I'm pouring into others, where are they at? So if you're in the room checking out, don't. (laughs) Because this is applicable for every disciple to understand maturity. So as children grow up in the Lord, they need guidance, they need attention, but then they grow to the third stage, spiritual young adult spiritual young adult. Now this is the primary need of a spiritual young adult is consistent modeling. Now you go from nurturing and guidance to modeling. Now you're living it out for them. You're showing them how to live, but you're also telling them why, right? My son is 12, and now we have a lot more conversations about why do we do this? Why do we do that? Even this morning in the car, we're talking about certain things about life in church, And we're explaining, here's why we do this. Here's God's design for the church. And here's why we do this and why we don't do that. And here's why that's sometimes hard. But we're modeling for our kids, grandkids, and spiritual children why we to live the way that we do. It's not enough to just say, just do it. Because when they get older, they start asking why. And they have the cognitive ability to learn. So the primary trait then is they're growing away from being self-centered. Hopefully a spiritual young adult grows to be Christ-centered and others-focused right? How many of you know people who've grown beyond being self-centered, and now they're Christ-centered? Now they're thinking more about, well, what would Jesus want? How can I serve other people? How can I serve my life group? And they, they don't make so many comments anymore, well, I don't like the music, and I don't like this, and I didn't get my way, and those are self-centered comments. We must grow beyond self and get to a focus on Christ and others. Now, again, I love this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Again, if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, listen to how Paul praises these young adults in Christ about how they have become imitators of him. 1 Thessalonians 6, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, but, where, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's maturity. You're turning away from self and sin to serve the one true living God. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We can't miss this. 
notice that they imitated the apostles. They imitated them. That means that the apostles were spiritual parents modeling for the younger in Christ how to live, right? That's what you do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this is such a, a beautiful discipleship picture. They imitated the apostles, and then they became an example to other believers. That is a beautiful picture of how God's design for immature people to become mature, and as they become mature, other immature people now look to them for how to grow, but yet we still look to others who are beyond us to grow. There's a generational, cyclical, reproductive dynamic here that we cannot miss. I need people in my life who are more mature than me, and there are many, (laughs) and I need to follow them and know them and model after them. I need to imitate their faith, but there are some who are not as mature as me that I need to be able to show my life and let them see my life so that they can grow, so that they can be an encouragement to others as well. So the natural progression is that I learn from someone else, I become an example to others, but I'm always growing in maturity in Christ. So, church, for you today, we have to ask ourselves this question. Who are you learning from? Who do you have in your life that will speak honestly, with vulnerability, in candor to say these are areas that you need to grow up. Who are you learning from? Who's discipling you? Who's mentoring you? Who's helping you walk the faith? But then secondly, who is learning from you? And I know many of us feel so insecure about that question. Well, I don't have much to offer and I'm not a pastor and I didn't go to school and I haven't been a Christian a long time. All of those are honestly just excuses from God's design. God has given you a faith. If you are a Christian, You've been commanded to make disciples. You have maturity that someone else does not have. How are you using it to influence other people? Who is learning from you? Are you engaged in making disciples? Invite somebody to follow you and learn together. And as we do, then we grow to the next and last phase, stage four, a spiritual parent. Spiritual parent. And the primary reality for spiritual parents is that they need ongoing maturity because we never outgrow our need for maturity, and they need to be engaged in disciple-making. Now, there's a really important nuance here. I'll let you take a moment to write down those fill-in-the-blanks. They need maturity, and they need to be engaged in disciple-making. But there's an important nuance here that we cannot miss, and there's a reason why the fourth stage is called spiritual parent rather than spiritual adult. And you probably already know the answer. Not all adults reproduce, but all parents do, right? The very definition of parent means that you have a child. You have reproduced yourself into another human life. And spiritually, we cannot miss this. This is the intended design and direction from God himself that we would become someday a spiritual parent that reproduces, that makes disciples of others, The goal is to become a spiritual parent. We hear this in Paul, who was a spiritual parent to many people. As you read his letters to Barnabas and to to Silas and to Timothy, uh, so many other people. But listen to 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Listen to how Paul, as a spiritual parent, speaks to his spiritual child, Timothy. He says, you then, my child, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of so many witnesses, entrust to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. I wish we could talk more about this and we had more time, but we can't miss this. Paul is the spiritual great-great-grandparent here in this analogy. Paul says, what you have heard from me, Timothy, teach others. So Timothy is the grandchild here, or, excuse me, Timothy is the son, but then Timothy, as he teaches faithful men, the faithful men become great-grandkids, grand, and then the others become great-grandkids. So we see four generations of discipleship, Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. Paul was a spiritual great-great-grandparent to multiple people through Timothy, through the faithful men. Do you see that? This is God's design for us as well, that we would become spiritual parents, understanding that we never outgrow our need to mature. We all have maturity left to go, but that our maturity isn't just for us. In the same way that if I deprived my own children of all the knowledge that I have about life, about faith, about the world, about work, about money, about relationships, about truth. If I deprived my son of all that I know, which isn't a ton, but if I deprived him of all that I know, that would be a profound disservice to him, would it not? And I have been given much freely by the grace of Christ, and the Bible tells us what you've been given freely, you ought to give freely. And discipleship is a very, very beautiful picture of giving what we've been given. The lessons we've learned are intended for someone else. Lastly, as we begin to wrap up here, I want you to listen again. Go back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to the maturity language that Paul uses as he talks to the church in Ephesus. He talks about the reality that Jesus has given leaders to the church. They might be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, or teachers. And he's given the church leaders to equip the church for ministry. And then in verse 13, he says this. Oops, I'm not there yet. Excuse me. Ephesians 4.13. Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by, by every by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, Christ, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I hope you hear all the language of the maturity in there. We are to grow up in every way, to mature manhood, that we would no longer be children. This is the biblical expectation, church, that we would grow to become a spiritual parent that is making disciples of other people. The truth point number four. Spiritual conversion happens in a moment, yet it takes a lifetime of devoted discipleship to raise spiritual children to become spiritual parents. Church, this is God's design for cultivating faith. They're spiritually dead. We cannot control the outcomes, but as we pour in our life, we pray, we cultivate seeds. By the grace of God, we hope and we pray that he would save some, and we know that he will. John 6, says that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So as, the, as God saves some, then our job switches from 
faith to maturity. How do I help my kids, my grandkids, my spiritual kids? How do I help them grow in Christ? What stage are they in? What stage am I in? What's my next step? How can I help someone else take theirs? So, for those in your life who are spiritually dead, the question for you this morning is, are you being faithful to cultivate, to plant and to water seeds of faith and gospel truth? Are you faithful to pray fervently for the salvation of their soul? For you, it's appropriate to reflect, what stage of maturity are you in? Where are you on that spiritual maturity continuum? On the back of your note guide, the very back, there's a little wheel that looks like a target, and there's some other things that you can be thinking about this week that might help you answer the question, what stage of maturity am I in? And what's your next step? And then lastly, your parents and grandparents specifically, what, what stage are your children or your grandchildren in? And how can you help come alongside where they are and help them to grow to their next step of maturity in Christ. And that's discipleship. It doesn't have to be incredibly complicated. How do we help someone else grow into Christ? We lead from the front. We model our life. We do that with vulnerability. And it's often not easy, but it is a very rewarding, biblical, commanded thing that you can do. You've been empowered by the Spirit of God. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have the Word of God which guides you and, and tells you what is true and what is right and what the boundaries are, and you've been placed within the people of God. God's given you everything you need to do it. The question is, are you ready to engage? And lastly, I have to say as we wrap up, if you are not a Christian today, and the Bible says the reality for you right now, if you are not in Christ, is that you are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. And there's nothing that you can do to become spiritually alive by your works, by your morality, by your church attendance, by philanthropy, or even being a good person in society. The Bible says that you have missed the mark just like all of us have. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And what that earns you is a spiritual death full of separation from God for all of eternity, which the Bible calls hell. And while that sounds really harsh and really like, oh man, oh, this guy's really going there. It is my privilege to tell you that that doesn't have to be your reality today. That God has made a way for you to be forgiven of your sins to be adopted into his family, to be transformed into new life, but that only comes when you accept and believe the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You believe and trust in him, that his work on the cross, that he died in your place for your sins, he was buried in the grave, and three days later he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, and that he possesses all power and authority. He's the only one that can forgive sin. Morality doesn't do it. Church attendance doesn't do it. Being a good person doesn't do it. Only the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross can make you right with God the Father for all eternity. And the Bible says if you want that life, all you have to do is repent of your sin and come to him in faith and belief. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk with you about that. But the gospel truly is good news, but it's only good news if you turn to him in time before you pass from this life. And the opportunity is, is here today. The invitation is here for you today to turn from sin, turn from self, turn from disbelief. Jesus died for you. He loves you. You don't have to clean up your life. Come to him as you are in repentance and faith, and he will change you and save you from the inside out. I have my contact information on the screen. If you want to talk about that, I'll be down here after the service, and I'd love to talk with anybody about that in any shape or form. Lastly, church, 
Uh, we've only got one life. And as I've done a funeral this past week, it's always so pressing in my mind to remind us of the brevity of life. You and I are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised the next 10 minutes. We are not promised the next 10 years. Let's invest our life in cultivating faith in others and cultivating maturity in others. Amen? We've only got one life. And God has given you everything you need. Let's invest it for things that have eternal significance, eternal impact. Let's fight against the distractions from the enemy. Let's fight against the things that tempt to pull us away to trivial pursuits here in the world. And let's stay focused on King Jesus. Let's stay focused on his kingdom. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna conclude this time. And then after that, Jane's going to come up and introduce some missionaries to you. So after I pray, just be prepared for that. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you and I hope and pray that what was spoken this morning was helpful to those who've heard it that your Holy Spirit is doing a work that only he can do. And I pray that you would help us to cultivate faith in those who don't know you. I pray that you would help us to cultivate maturity in those who are following Jesus, that we would be intentional disciple makers, that we would be on mission in our families, helping our kids, grandkids, and others to know the truth of the gospel and to grow in the gospel. For those who don't know you, Father, I pray that they would be pricked by your spirit, their hearts would be convicted by sin, and that they would desperately long to be drawn into your family, and I pray that you would save some, even today, Father, if you'd be so willing. We pray for them and plead for them, interceding for them today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.